Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of the MindRenewed.com, podcasting to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. Today is the 14th of August 2014, and it's my great pleasure yet again to be speaking to Kevin Ryan, who many of you of course will remember joined us earlier this year to talk about his book Another 19, Investigating Legitimate 9-11 Suspects. And today of course we're going to be speaking about a different area of 9-11 research. But just before we get on to that, let me remind listeners about Kevin. He, Kevin Ryan is one of the most widely respected 9-11 researchers. In 2004, he was fired from his position as site manager for Environmental Testing Division of Underwriters Laboratories for asking questions about that company's testing of the World Trade Center construction materials as well as that company's involvement in the WTC investigation being conducted by the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Since being fired for asking questions, he has held prominent positions with many scholarly 9-11 research groups, co-authored several books and many peer-reviewed scientific articles on the subject, and he continues to give many presentations and interviews. Kevin, it's great to be speaking with you again. Thanks very much for joining us on The Mind Renewed. Thank you, Julian. It's great to be with you. Now, today, I want to ask you about the reports by the U.S. National Institute of Standards and Technology, or commonly known as NIST, on its own investigations into the World Trade Center disaster of 2001. Now, I understand that these investigations were commissioned by the U.S. government in 2002 with the express purpose of, and I'm going to quote here, determining why and how WTC-1 and WTC-2 collapsed following the initial impacts of the aircraft and why and how WTC-7 collapsed. And the final report on the Twin Towers came out in 2005 and the final report on Building 7 came out in 2008. And I I should think that most people would think that uh, such an august institution as NIST would have explained exactly why and how those high-rise buildings collapsed and, you know, in such a way that would neatly fit with the official story of 9-11. However, in 2011, you gave, I think, a startling presentation at the Toronto hearings on 9-11 at Ryerson University in Toronto in which you made, and I think, some really quite compelling arguments that NIST had failed in its mission And worse than that, you gave the impression that you thought it had been even fraudulent in its work in some respects. So I thought that it would be great if you came on the show to uh, share with us your reasons for this. And we'll proceed with that in a moment or two. But first, for the sake of listeners who might not have heard you before, could you tell us why you got into this business of questioning the NIST reports? And, you know, why did you get into this business of questioning the official version of 9-11 at all? Yes, I'd be glad to. Um, My investigation into 9-11 began simply as a series of questions about things that were happening in in my country, the United States, in 2003. It was born of the uh, justification for the original Iraq invasion, the the Iraq war in 2003. And, um, you know, it was clear to me the justification for that invasion was based on false premises, the the Niger document about yellow cake, the aluminum tubes. These things were coming out even at the time that that my government was using them to justify a war. They were coming out as being false. So I wondered when that sort of uh, deception began, and it made me recall some comments made by the CEO of the company where I worked, Underwriters Laboratories, who had told us uh, when he visited our location that the company had tested and certified the steel used to build the World Trade Center towers. And uh, that got me interested in the story of what happened on 9-11, because 9-11 was the really the driving force behind this new war on terror that was um, doing so much uh, to change our values and and, and doing so much uh, in general around the world. So I um, began looking more into the uh, events of 9-11 and learned that there were quite a lot of serious questions about how the three buildings, three skyscrapers at Ground Zero in, in Manhattan had fallen. And I began to ask more questions about that testing that our CEO had referred to. It would have been testing done 40 years earlier uh, when the buildings were constructed to uh, ensure what's called fire resistance. And so uh, this is a kind of testing in which uh, floor assemblies and column assemblies are put in a big furnace, a big testing furnace, and they're tested per a standard called ASTM E119, which ensures, actually, it just rates the components for a certain amount of 
fire resistance. In the case of the World Trade Center towers, they were tested to the 1968 New York City Code, which required that the floors would withstand two hours of intense fire in the furnace, and the columns would uh, withstand three hours of fire in the furnace. And one of the big contradictions with uh, the facts of, of 9-11 is that the Twin Towers, one of them failed in only 56 minutes, completely collapsed in only 56 minutes, which contradicted, given that the official account was a fire-based story, it contradicted the facts of, of what happened. So I ended up writing to the government agency after a year of questioning at my company. I, I wrote to the government agency NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, asking them about the investigation that they were conducting and that my company was helping with and asking them to clarify some of these contradictions. And, and I was um, fired from my job for having done that. Mm. And uh, I went on from there to uh, become a researcher in, into 9-11 in my spare time. I spent uh, the next 10 years, so far almost, uh, 10 years now, going into uh, great detail into the events of 9-11, not just at the World Trade Center, but otherwise as well. Were you actually questioning what Underwriters Laboratories was actually doing themselves for NIST? Yes, I was. I At the time, I was trying to be uh, really helpful. Uh, at the time, I felt I was trying to protect my company's reputation, actually, although I was increasingly suspicious that something was going on that was not above board. And so I asked about things like uh, the pancakes theory, which was at the time – the leading theory for how the towers actually collapsed, that the floors could not withstand their load due to the fire. The floors collapsed after sagging, and then the columns just uh, simply were unsupported and they collapsed as well. And unfortunately for that theory, in August of 2004, just before I wrote to the government agency, my company had done testing that disproved that pancake theory. They built models of exact replicas of the floor assemblies from the World Trade Center towers, put them in the furnaces, and did testing, stripping off all the fireproofing for the most part, almost basically no fireproofing. Um, they loaded the, uh, the floors with twice the load known to have existed in the World Trade Center towers. They raised the temperature well beyond what would have been seen in the, in the World Trade Center towers, and yet still the floors did not fail to hold their load the pancake theory really at that time was defeated, and it took years before everyone admitted that, but it was clear in, in August of 2004 that the pancake theory no longer was viable. So I asked about that and, and other tests that NIST was doing. Now, that pancake theory is not actually part of the NIST report, is it, into the Twin Towers? That goes beyond their remit, is that right? It does um, in the sense that, you know, they perform the tests uh, they showed in detail the test results, and uh, but they don't come out and call it the pancake theory uh, that, that they were. This is what they were trying to do. The earlier investigation conducted by the Federal uh, Emergency Management Ad Administration and ASCE, the American Society of Civil Engineers, that investigation did define the pancake theory, but NIST did not support it later, and that's probably partly because they could not support it with their physical testing. And would that be true of the pile driver theory as well? Well, um, the fact is NIST ultimately did not live up to their charter. You stated the charter of the, of the NIST investigation at the beginning of the program where they were to explain how and why all three buildings collapsed. And what they actually did was provide what they call the collapse initiation sequence they failed to explain the actual collapse, the dynamics of the collapse. So what they provided ultimately was a sequence uh, that led up to what they proposed was an inevitable collapse of each building. And what I did in my Toronto hearings presentation was I looked in detail at that collapse initiation sequence for the towers and uh, examined whether or not each of the steps of that sequence was valid. 
Okay, so let's turn then to some of those specific steps that you've just mentioned there. And I'm going to list the seven things and then ask you to comment on each in turn, if I may. So you said that this is what NIST claims. Uh, number one, a number of columns were severed by aircraft impact. Two, loads were redistributed to the remaining columns. Three, fireproofing was widely dislodged. Four, columns and floor assemblies were softened by high temperatures. Five, softened floor assemblies began to sag. Six, sagging floor pulled the exterior columns inward, causing columns to buckle, and seven, instability then spread around the exterior of the building. And you have disagreement with each of those points. So can I start with the columns and the loads? Um, this is a number of the columns were severed by aircraft impact and loads were redistributed to the remaining columns. What problem do you have with this? Well, if I could step back just for a second and mention that uh, this was the only time in history that any building had ever failed from fire, collapsed completely from fire. Mm. And so on that day, three incidences, the only incidences ever occurred. And that's why we're looking at the evidence that the government would present for this explanation that would support the political policies. And we're looking in detail. So if we begin with the columns being severed, NIST did admit that only a small percentage of the columns were severed. It was 14% of the columns in the first tower and 15% in the second tower. And when we talk about columns in the towers, we're talking about 47 core columns, very super massive core columns, and then over 200 perimeter columns. So when 14% were severed, that left far more capacity of the building to support its own load. And this was made clear by the uh, design claims from the original engineering uh, design and reported in the engineering news record back at the time when the buildings were constructed. The original design claims that uh, included that uh, one could cut away all the first story columns on one side of the building and partway from the corners of perpendicular sides and the building would still withstand its loads in a 100-mile-per-hour wind from any direction. And that really puts this 14-15% column loss in perspective. The design claims show that you know, that's 25% of the columns could be lost and still no problem. Can I just uh, throw in here something that I said to you before the interview, I don't know whether I'll get these pronunciations correct, but Bezant and Verdure wrote uh, an article in 2007 called Mechanics of Progressive Collapse, and they're looking at the Twin Towers collapses here, and they say that about 13% of the total 287 columns were severed, but uh, they also say, and many more were significantly deflected. Um, what that means, I'm not quite sure. Uh, but then they say, you know, this caused uh, stress redistribution, which significantly increased the load of some columns attaining or nearing the load capacity for some of them. So they're giving the impression there that was this extra deflection of columns, which goes beyond this, you know, 13, 14, 15 percent that you've just talked about. Yeah. And so that does highlight a, uh, an issue that independent researchers have had over the years. Um, we are given um, a number of different and conflicting official explanations through the government agencies, FEMA and NIST. And we wait patiently for those explanations to come out. And, and that's what we did in the case of the NIST report. And then we also have either media or other uh, official story supporters like uh, Professor Bazant coming up with additional sort of uh, information that's not supported or not cited by the official investigation. So you gave an example there. This idea of much greater percentage of columns being deflected or weakened in some way was not part of the official investigation or its explanation for what happened. So we don't necessarily look to try to answer every possible theory that could be put out there, but try to focus on the official investigation itself. Mm. So if Professor Bazant could give more detail on exactly what the load reduction capacity was in, in specific quantitative detail, then then perhaps NIST could look at that and say, yes or no, we, we agree with that. But I don't believe that's happened. And uh, you say, uh, quoting from one article, I think this was those who were involved in actually designing in the first place, maybe anyway, back in the 1960s, that uh, these loads on some of the perimeter columns, I think, could be increased by more than 2000% before failure occurs. 
That's right. That was part of the engineering news record reports as well. Now, one thing to remember is that the people who designed the building, specifically a man named John Skilling, who was the lead engineer for the design of the building, said that given uh, the exact occurrence of a jet airliner impacting the towers, that, of course, a lot of people would die because of the jet fuel fires. But very clearly, he said in 1993, after the uh, 1993 bombing of the, the World Trade Center towers, that the towers would easily withstand an airliner impact. So the people who designed the towers did not think that an airliner impact would bring the towers down. And the loads, as you said, would be redistributed given the loss of columns and also given that the safety factor, the over-design of the buildings was so great that column loads could be increased more than 2,000% according to the engineering news record. So far with these first two steps, we really don't, and I think NIST agrees, those are not the critical factors that NIST gave for the collapse of the buildings at this point. In our discussion, there's nothing that would lead us to believe that the towers would be the first incidents of a total global collapse from fire. So things really start to kick in with their third point then, which has to do with the fireproofing, which they say, well, the fireproofing was widely dislodged. And, you know, when I look at that, you know, on the surface as a non-technical person in this respect, you know, I said, well, that seems reasonable. You know, if a large Boeing 767 plows into the building, you'd expect, you know, something quite flimsy. I mean, I would have thought so. Uh, fireproofing would be quite flimsy. That would be stripped away. And so then the fire would have a chance to do its real damage. But what kind of evidence did NIST produce to suggest that that really happened? Well, originally, the NIST group did not present any evidence for that. They just stated that. Uh, when we go back to 2004, when I originally questioned NIST directly, they had not in their draft report, which is all that they had put out at that time, presented any physical evidence that fireproofing would have been widely dislodged. That's the term they used. They said that the towers really would not have collapsed given the impact and the loss of columns and so forth, if the insulation had not been widely dislodged. So they say insulation when they mean fireproofing. Mm. And so some of us asked them, well, where's your physical evidence for this? Where's the testing? And they did insert in the final report in 2005 an appendix, a 12-page appendix, describing a test that they performed using a shotgun. Uh, so it's a modified shotgun, as if you had bought it from Walmart or something, and they, they modified it to uh, use a different projectiles, and they, they loaded it with you know nuts and bolts and so forth. Their test amounted to 15 shots from the shotgun at materials that were placed in a plywood box, and they, they show the pictures in this appendix, and, and it doesn't look like the fireproofing is being sheared very significantly in the photographs, but yet... The more important point turns out that the energy required for this was just simply not present. Uh, the energy that uh, severed the columns and that uh, destroyed the aircraft as the aircraft hit the building really consumed all of the uh, what was available, all of the kinetic energy. And so what would have been needed with uh, removing the fireproofing was another megajoule per square meter of of energy to shear off and really shotguns pointed in every direction of these tiny little projectiles their evidence really isn't there for that sort of effect so we're not convinced at all that that's what happened mm. but is there some kind of academic research that backs up this uh, supposed fact that there isn't enough kinetic energy to produce this effect yes i cited uh, calculations done by engineers at mit and they had done very uh, detailed calculations earlier before the NIST report came out showing where the kinetic energy was consumed in the impact and how the, the aircraft was torn apart and how the columns were severed. And, and that all kind of made sense at the time. But then, you know, when the NIST report came out and then they added this additional appendix, they had an energy deficit. There was no extra energy for all of these shotgun blasts, and frankly, it would have had to strip the fireproofing from huge sections of this acre-wide building, five floors worth of the building. Yeah, do they actually acknowledge that energy deficit in the report? They do not, no. They just, uh, mm. as I said, they did not even really put the shotgun test in the draft report. They inserted mm. it in the final report and, and never really mentioned the energy requirements. And that uh, energy article has not been refuted, presumably? 
No, the article from MIT uh, was not really mentioned either. So they just didn't, they really just didn't mention that it glossed over the entire question. And this is one, one thing I wanted to ask about. You do say that it's not convincing that a Boeing 767 could actually transform into this mass of parts and become like a, you know, a shotgun blast. But I'm just wondering, I was speaking to Dr. Frank Legg a little while ago about the hit at the Pentagon, and he was describing an experiment with an F-4 Phantom aircraft, which was flown directly at a resistant object. And he said that that was indeed completely fragmented. Um, so I'm just wondering whether that kind of effect could have produced this, this analogy to shotgun blast and uh, remove the fireproofing. Yeah, I think I know what uh, Dr. Legg was referring to. I believe I've seen the video of the test that he's mentioning. And so when we talk about the, the 767 slamming into the, uh, the towers, uh, we're talking about a plane coming through this perimeter wall. And it has a lot of area to work on, right? In order to support the official story, it has to come in, it has to sever the columns, it has to be converted as it's severing the columns and, and also moving between the columns into tiny projectiles. People know, I assume, what shotgun pellets look like. And then it has to move across a wide area of the building and from multiple directions be able to shear off fireproofing using shearing forces. So at this point, it certainly is not proven by any means, but I, there is a video from Purdue University, another group actually connected to the official accounts, that showed an animation of what happened. And, and in, in this animation, it's very clear that from their perspective, the particles that were created, the, the debris particles that were created were rather large. They were not uh, small pellet size at all. Mm -hmm. Can we turn to the step four, which is the softening and the sagging? This is where the explanation suggests that the floors themselves began to sag due to the extreme heat. And they did something called a paint deformation test to establish this. So what was that test? Can you describe what they did with that? Yes, this is one of the first things that I questioned uh, when I wrote to the government agency NIST. And they had done what is basically a paint cracking test. You know, they had uh, built a calibration curve by taking steel samples, some of the few steel samples that were saved from the towers. And uh, they had painted them with the World Trade Center uh, primer paint uh, that would have been used on the columns. And they exposed those pieces to a range of temperatures and therefore built this calibration curve that they could compare the actual um, materials that were found to. And they found that the, uh, the samples that were saved uh, that had uh, been exposed to the actual fires in the World Trade Center towers had seen a temperature only of about 250 centigrade or Celsius. And that's quite low given the kinds of temperature effects that NIST implies. So 250 degrees Celsius is about 480 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, none of the temperatures reached a temperature of 600 degrees Celsius, which has frequently been cited as uh, being a point at which steel loses half of its strength. That's not critical given that the design of the towers allowed this huge safety factor, as we discussed before. But no, none of the steel samples reached even the point at which half of the strength would have been lost. So, And when we're talking about what steel they took and did this comparison with, NIST said it was selecting samples from an enormous amount of steel, and, and they were looking at regions of impact and fire damage in that sample selection process. So given the low temperature result, the fourth step of this collapse initiation sequence that these temperatures weaken the columns and the floors it doesn't hold up in terms of examination of the evidence could you tell us at what kind of temperature the sagging phenomenon starts to take place well the uh, the sagging in this test uh, that they did of the floors started to occur at temperatures above a thousand degrees Celsius, and that makes some sense. But I mean, the temperatures that NIST gave for you know maximum temperatures they cited in the report were gas temperatures of about a thousand degrees Celsius. But when we're talking about um, the steel, that steel temperature will lag behind the gas temperature, and uh, what they actually showed in the floor model test that UL helped them with 
was that if they put the floor models in the furnace and, and tested it per ASTM E119, the temperature would rise. And after about 45 minutes, the sagging would begin, but only about three inches of sagging would occur at that temperature. Now, if they let it go farther, it would sag a bit more, but uh, um, not nearly to the point of what they reported in their computer model, uh, which they ended up resorting to because uh, these physical tests were not really supporting their predetermined conclusion. So it, it kind of is a, is a strange question. What temperature would, would it have to rise to to meet the, the predetermined sort of objective of NIST? Because uh, the fact is that the floors and these test models did not do what NIST was implying they might do. And um, after 45 minutes, you could see in the in the pictures, even after the, the tests were finished, that the floors had barely sagged at all. And yet, when I turn back to that article by Bezant and Verdura, they say that because a significant amount of steel insulation was stripped, they make that claim, they then say many structural steel members heated up to 600 degrees centigrade. And then they go on to say that at 600 degrees centigrade, about 85% of the yield strength is lost. They say, you know, many structural steel members did in fact get up to that temperature. Yeah, and as we see in the NIST report, the NCSTAR 1-3C and NCSTAR 1-3E reports, the physical tests show that none of the steel samples taken from the towers reached a temperature of 600 degrees Celsius. So there is absolutely no evidence for what Professor Bazant is contending. None of the steel recovered from the World Trade Center towers and tested via the test performed by NIST, none of them reached the temperature of 600 degrees Celsius. So you know, there's simply no physical evidence. There's, there's just no evidence for that contention. Well, that's amazing you say that, because that quote actually references the NIST study. It says, NIST 2005, many structural steel members heated up to 600 degrees centigrade, as confirmed by annealing studies of steel debris, NIST 2005. Yeah, so uh, it's it's just really clear that uh, there's some problem there because uh, they make it very clear in their report that they did this paint deformation test, they did a steel microstructure test. The steel microstructure test very clearly shows that if anything had reached 600 degrees Celsius, it would have formed what are called spheroids. There would have been a, an effect called spheroidization. It's a steel microstructure effect. None of the steel samples showed that from the World Trade Center towers, and therefore none of those samples had reached a temperature of 600 degrees Celsius. And yet in their next step, NIST says that whatever sagging did take place was sufficient to pull these floor assemblies. These floor assemblies did sag and then pulled the exterior columns inward. Now, Bezant and Verdure say this was due to catenary action. So this was this lateral force that was able to pull these, mm -hmm. because of the sort of chain-like curvature of, of this steel, was able to pull the sides inwards. Do you buy that? No, I don't buy it, uh, because I'm looking really at the physical, the actual direct evidence, not uh, hypothetical uh, statements as uh, Bezant and, and company are doing. So if you look at the actual physical evidence, Again, from the tests that my company, UL, did on behalf of NIST for their investigation, you see that uh, when the floor assemblies were put in the furnaces and tested per the standard test, the sagging of the floors was only about three inches in the middle of the 35-foot-long span of floor assembly. Um, and this was with basically all the fireproofing removed. And they had actually a series of models made uh, with decreasing amounts of fireproofing applied. And even the one that had basically no fireproofing on it only sagged about three inches in the middle. And the major joist parts did not sag at all. Now, the, the problem that we see in the NIST report is, again, with all these physical tests failing to support their contentions, they turn to a computer model, which, by the way, NIST is not willing to share with the public. And they show these computer model images in the report, and they turn this three inches of sagging into a dramatic 42 inches of sagging with the joist bending down severely. So um, it's just it's really begins at this point to show that NIST was more political science than physical science. 
And they were intending, clearly at this point, people begin to believe that they were intending simply to support the political policy of their bosses. Mm -hmm. They reported directly to the Department of Commerce and to the president. So uh, it's not terribly surprising to some people that they would do this sort of thing. But, you know, to turn away from the physical evidence and create a computer model that cannot be shared, they were not willing to share with the public, that uh, contradicts the physical evidence is where we begin to believe that we are uh, looking at fraud, scientific fraud. I said to you before the interview that I did actually check out that particular computer scenario there that you're referencing. And so is this the one that is DBARE in the NC Star 1 to 6 Chapter 4? Yes, that's one of the uh, that's one of the cases in the computer model. Mm-hmm. So when I was looking at that, I did notice that they ran this model with no insulation at 598 degrees centigrade for a massive 90 minutes. Do you think that's all quite unreasonable? I really do. And uh, obviously, uh, as we stated, there's no physical evidence that the fireproofing was stripped off. Even if it had been, the floor models tests show that the floors would not have sagged as much as the computer showed it did. The steel temperatures did not reach 600 degrees Celsius per the steel temperature test. So obviously that's incorrect. And the 90 minutes is twice as long as, according to the NIST report, the areas of failure could have seen. The fires in the World Trade Center towers had to migrate around the core of the building in order to reach the areas where uh, initial failure was said to have occurred. So in the North Tower, for example, the uh, plane hit the uh, north side of the building and had to migrate around to the south base of the building where the initial failure, according to NIST, occurred. And that migration time would have allowed for only about 45 minutes of fire in the failure zone. So to expose their computer model, computer-generated segments to 90 minutes of fire, which is twice as long, uh, temperatures that far exceeded what the physical evidence showed, and stripping off all the fireproofing when there's no evidence for that is quite unbelievable. Uh, it gets it gets worse than that, as you uh, I think you might have seen. <laughs> what you mentioned about disconnecting the floors and then applying an imaginary pull-in force. What's that? Yeah, so this is, if you look at this report, NC Star 1-6, the the computer model uh, that justified the NIST contentions was based on these segments of wall assembly that were ultimately disconnected from the floors. So that raises the alarming question, the NIST sequence of events is dependent on the floors pulling this wall inward. And, of course, if they're disconnected, that can't possibly happen in the real world. And so, well, one might wonder, why would they do that? And the reason, I believe, is that the wall assemblies were this incredible grid of supported structure. You know, if a floor was to, if it was to actually sag, and it didn't, but if it did, and it would have a limited ability to pull in a floor because the floors and the walls formed this interconnected grid. All of the floors would have had to sag. And then if that had happened, there still would have been support from the surrounding structure. So I think they had to disconnect the floor models to even give an indication that the wall might have pulled in using a force that frankly did not exist if the, if the floors were not connected. So is the idea that the sagging pulled in the sides and then a disconnection phenomenon happened almost instantaneously in order to allow the collapse to take place? Well, in order for the inward pull of the wall to occur, the floors would have had to be connected. And unfortunately, in the model, the disconnection occurred before the inward pull mm. was applied. So that's, oh. a, again, that's, yeah, that's an indication right. of, of just a blatant fraud, in my opinion. And this is the scenario that they rely upon for their explanation. Is that right? That's right. That's yeah. right. And yet we have Bazant and Vajure saying that uh, this was meticulous, exhaustive, and very realistic computer simulations that they did here. Well, those are impressive adjectives, but yeah, what we really need is evidence in order to support this critical story, this explanation that drives all public policy or did at the time uh, in all of the wars. We really need evidence and we need to be objective. Mm -hmm. And then we have this final step where the claim is that instability spread around the building 
my, my immediate reaction to that is, well, if it was happening all the way around the building, yes, you might have this uniform symmetrical collapse, but wouldn't that have to happen almost instantaneously? That's right. I considered myself how quickly this instability would have had to spread. So if I gave the example of the North Tower, if on the south face of the tower, the, the columns began to be pulled inward and, and therefore the building began to collapse on one side, then that instability, in order for the, to see the uniform collapse that we saw, perfectly vertical uniform collapse, that instability would have had to have spread around the other uh, walls of the building in approximately half a second, you know, or less of, of the 10 second fall time that we saw. And that's, you know, that's twice the speed of sound uh, or, or several times the speed of sound. And it doesn't make sense that that sort of physical deformation would be able to travel at that speed. Mm. And then we're left with this uh, phrase, global collapse ensued, with it looks like no further questions asked. Yeah, and so that ends, again gets to uh, uh, the fact that many of the questions are left an- unanswered. You know, the, the fall time itself of the buildings of, a, of approximately 10 to 12 seconds, according to NIST, seems to defy the idea of the resistance that would have been from the floors below. You know, if each of the floors had caused just a hesitation just for half a second, we would need another 40 seconds for the buildings to have collapsed. There should have been some sort of a deceleration given the massive structure below, but we didn't see that. And there was no mention of the things people call squibs, these cannon-like bursts of material that appear to be explosive effects uh, that were occurring 10 to 30 floors below the collapse front. Uh, there's no mention of the molten metal that was existing pouring from the building and then, and then rubble piles. And and a lot of other evidence was just ignored by this simply not addressing the collapse dynamics. Do you feel that they only went so far because they actually realized that there were so many problems that they'd have to deal with at that point that they think, well, well, let's just take our investigation so far and just stop there because of all these problems? Yeah, I think that's what happened. That's my guess. Um, let's turn then to WTC building number seven. Uh, now, just before we get to this 2008 final report, I believe I'm right in saying that the earlier investigation into the collapse of building seven considered the role of diesel tanks fueling the fires in the building. And there was a suggestion that debris from WTC one had significantly weakened the structure. But that was all abandoned by NIST, was it not, in its final report? Yes, that's exactly right. The earlier uh, investigation by FEMA implied, it suggested that diesel fuel fires from diesel fuel tanks uh, below the buildings had a significant effect in causing fire that would burn for a long time and, and cause the destruction of this third skyscraper, Building 7. And it really needed to be an unusual explanation, again, because this building was not hit by a plane uh, it was 47 stories tall, and it fell in in basically seven seconds into its own footprint. So there really needed to be a very solid, very convincing case. And what we saw over the years was the diesel fuel fire uh, hypothesis, the hypothesis that damage from uh, the falling North Tower initiated fires and then somehow initiated the uniform collapse of this third building. We heard that the design of the building over the Con Ed substation was somehow impactful. But as, as you just mentioned, NIST abandoned and clearly made took the opposite position on all three of these early hypotheses. They said that no, none of those things played a significant role in the collapse of this building. They ultimately said it was basically an office fire. They didn't make it really clear how the office fire began, but they did say it was an office fire that brought this building down. What was their investigative approach to Building 7 like? I mean, did they essentially concentrate on physical testing in this case and the use of photographic evidence, or did they, again, mostly rely on computer modeling? They did rely on computer modeling, and in fact, they did no additional physical testing. So we talked about the report for the towers that came out in September of 2005. It was yet another three years, September of 2008, when the a report for Building 7 came out. They had disconnected that report from their investigation. They were clearly having trouble with it. In 2006, they were even uh, reported, the lead investigator was reported of, uh, saying that they had trouble getting a handle on Building Number 7. They didn't know what had occurred as of 2006. 
which, you know, was very surprising given that in 2008, they knew exactly what, what happened in their final report. So, yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. I was just going to, to, to bring up actually something that always sticks in my mind. And it was just a, a, a quote from David Coburn of Popular Mechanics. And I saw the BBC conspiracy theory program on 9 11. Right. And the BBC presenter said, you know, well, that looks like it's a controlled demolition the way that's come down. And then uh, David Coburn said, and this was, I think this is 2007, he said, I understand why people might think that. I see what they're saying. But when you learn the facts about the way the building was built, and about the way it supported itself and the damage that was done from the collapsing towers that preceded it, the idea that it was a demolition just holds no water. So he's sort of giving the impression there that he really does completely understand how that building came down. But you're saying that at that time in 2007, NIST itself wasn't sure. That's right. And and Shyam Sunder, who was the lead investigator for uh, NIST, was interviewed for New York Magazine in 2006. And he stated he just really didn't know. They really didn't know in 2006 they didn't know what happened to Building 7, and yet a year later you're saying that uh, a media representative who uh, I would assume is much less technically competent was very well versed on exactly what happened. This is kind of the uh, field of play that uh, those of us interested in getting to the truth of the matter have dealt with, that we've had the official investigations and yet also these media representatives lobbing various competing in some cases conflicting ideas to the public and, and and people trying to deal with all of that at the same time yeah okay now i want to just give an impression of nist's basic narrative for building seven and this comes from your toronto presentation so what i'm going to do is give what you said there and then ask you to flesh it out a little if, if i may i think it'd be a good idea to get an impression of what nist is saying before we, you deconstruct it you said that they say Thermal expansion of the floor system surrounding column 79 led to the collapse of floor 13, which triggered a cascade of floor failures. In this case, the floor beams on the northeast corner of the building expanded enough that they pushed the girder spanning between column 79 to 44 to the west on the 13th floor. This movement was enough for the girder to walk off its support at column 79. Now, there's a lot to take in there. Could you kind of flesh that out and give us a, a clearer picture of what they're saying? Yes. NIST, after abandoning these earlier hypotheses, began to look at what might have been the initiating event. So again, they went back to what is it, what they felt initiated the event. So looking at videos and photographs, at least at the beginning, looking at videos and photographs, NIST noticed that um, there was a kink in the building at the east side, um, which appeared to be underneath one of the core columns or some of the core columns of the building. And they uh, hypothesized that this would have been around column 79. So that's they number each of the columns in the building. And column 79 is one of the core columns in the not in the middle, but kind of toward the east side of the building. And if you see the building kinking well at that point, then that must have been where the failure occurred. Um, and again, look at the video, you have to notice the perfect symmetry other than this minor kinking on the east side, the perfect symmetry of the building coming down, looking exactly like a controlled demolition as cited by almost everyone who sees it. But what NIST came up with was this thing based on what we call linear linear thermal expansion. And so materials like steel, if you heat them up, they will expand. And they will expand linearly in the sense of uh, axially according to the length of the column. And that's what's happening in their uh, hypothesis. So there are some floor beams in each of the floors. They're these massive beams that uh, hold up the concrete and the and the floor pans in the building. And NIST has hypothesized that uh, there was a fire that occurred on floor 12, actually, and heating up the floor for floor 13. And that caused these floor beams to expand a few inches, you know, the length of them. They're 53 feet long. And maybe, uh, according to NIST, they expanded a few inches. And when doing that, these beams are uh, uh, butting up against a what's called a girder, which is another structural component in the floor. And um, the idea is this few inches of expansion pushed this one girder off its seat off and broke some bolts and pushed it off its seat. 
And that caused this critical column 79 to be unsupported in some some way. And the column would then fail, buckle, and that would lead, the idea is that would lead to complete collapse of the building in seven seconds. Now that in itself, that's that's a stretch to believe in itself. Mm. But then we have to look uh, because we're trying to be objective and look at the evidence, is it possible that that would have occurred? And that's what I tried to do in my presentation. Yeah, and I'm going to come to some of the details in just a second. I just want to ask you about this uh, collapse again, just for a moment. Uh, is the idea with their report here that they're saying that the internal structure failed and fell ahead of the external structure falling such that you could have this free fall? They do uh, imply that, yes, and they suggest that as if it was like an empty box with all of the structure within not really connected to the outside of the box, you know. So, I mean, they had to explain how this building could have come down so quickly, and they did imply in the report that the internal guts of the building all just kind of collapsed and then the empty box around it collapsed. And, of course, that doesn't make sense either because the the columns were all connected together. Everything was connected to the exterior of the building. There was no internal building within uh, an external shell. So uh, that doesn't really hold up either. But um, we also have to keep going back to exactly what they're saying and, and see if any of it supports itself. And so far... With the towers, we've, we've seen that it didn't, and I believe that's what I showed as well with Building 7. Okay, now one of the points that you make is that the theory they have about fire actually contradicted what was known about the fire resistance plan for the building. Yeah, so um, my company, Underwriters Laboratories, is cited directly in the NIST World Trade Center 7 report having performed the fire resistance testing for the steel components in the building. So, again, according to the New York City Code, the building should have withstood hours of fire, and yet uh, we're given this thermal expansion, the fire effect failure hypothesis that uh, contradicts that fire resistance certification. So um, there's additional complications because the NIST group in their interim meetings stated clearly that in a given area of the building, there was only 20 minutes worth of fire load. So the fire had to migrate throughout the building, but in a given area, for example, uh, near column 79 on floor 12, there was only approximately 20 minutes worth of fuel for the fire to consume. And so, uh, you know, if we're talking about hours of fire resistance and 20 minutes of fire load, they directly contradict each other. And all the fireproofing presumably was intact. That's exactly right. NIST does not contend that fireproofing loss occurred in Building 7. So these are fully fireproof steel components that somehow failed due to fire. Mm -hmm. And you say somewhere that uh, although the sprinkler system apparently wasn't working, that system did actually allow for an external water source to be added in an emergency and the fire crews were around and they could have added that. Yes, and um, they don't go into a great deal of detail on that, but uh, a lot of people have said that the sprinkler system in the building was not functioning, but it's clear that uh, there was a possibility of making it functional. That just was not done. Okay, can we concentrate on this business about the thermal expansion and the shear studs as well? Could you explain how important these shear studs are to the whole study of this and uh, why NIST seemed to say one thing at one time and then uh, change its mind about it? Yeah, shear studs are basically large bolts that are set in the floors. They connect the floor assemblies, the pans, to the uh, to the floor beams. And NIST originally stated that most of the beams and girders were made uh, composite with the floor slabs. So there were shear studs. So they, they said that they did exist in 2004. And in 2008, when they put out their final report, they contradicted themselves, or the NIST group did, saying that shear studs were not installed on the girders. So the point here is that if this linear thermal expansion occurred, it would have have to be uh, what's called differential linear thermal expansion for it to have any effect. That is, the floor beam and the floor slab would have had to expand at different rates, and the shear studs prevented that. 
So they made them composite. They made them in one as one piece. And so it's kind of technical, but the fact is that NIST contradicted itself on these shear studs. They also contradicted a report, an academic report made by a man named Salvarinas, who was the um, project manager for the company, the engineering company that built the buildings. And his diagrams in his academic paper made it clear that these girders did, in fact, have shear studs on them. The point is that NIST, as it went on, was trying to get closer and closer to some possibility that this linear thermal expansion could cause even this beginning initiating event. And they were having trouble and having to contradict themselves to do it. You're saying they had to get rid of the shear studs in order for this phenomenon of differential thermal expansion to account for the collapse. That's right. They had to get rid of the shear studs. And they frankly, they had to ignore a lot of other connections because when we talk about this girder moving off its seat, it was bolted and welded to the seat. So this linear thermal expansion that was occurring had to create enough force to break many of these, all these shear studs and, and the bolts that were on the seat and the welding points with, on, on the steel had to break all of that in order for this critical girder to move off its seat and fall to the the floor and you say that this differential thermal expansion uh, between between the steel and the concrete this was necessary to produce this effect that's right because the floors were all you know they were composite so we're talking about a huge floor slab Mm -hmm. right and it would resist the uh, linear thermal expansion of the uh, individual floor beams the floor slabs this huge concrete and steel pans structure. So if it was connected to the floor beams, it would have resisted that. And in fact, for that linear thermal expansion to occur by just a few inches, it would have had to break those shear studs off. So, so is, is, is it true then that the concrete and the steel do actually have a, a quite a difference of the rate of expansion under heat? That's exactly right. There's differences in the expansion uh, capacity of the different materials, and that would have been something that would have created problems for the steel uh, expanding differentially and, and causing the effect that NIST said that it did. Mm-hmm. Now, there's one other thing that there was some there was some input to the NIST report after it came out from some professors in Australia who had actually tested the exact effect that the linear thermal expansion effect uh, that NIST was citing, and they came out clearly and said that uh, that was not their experience in their testing that they had done uh, actual physical tests, the kinds of tests that NIST should have done to see if this linear thermal expansion would have occurred and it would not have occurred according to these professors from uh, Victoria University in Australia. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I'm, I'm trying to understand this. So they're saying that that phenomenon did not occur under their testing and yet you say this differential expansion does generally happen. Uh, I, I don't understand how that works. Well, no, I don't necessarily see linear thermal expansion is not a new effect. It is something that can occur All materials expand when they're heated, but I am not contending that that did occur in the World Trade Center Building 7, certainly not from 20 minutes worth of fire and not on fireproof steel components. I believe that uh, did not occur, but even if it had, the idea is that these composite, these beams composite with the floor would be uh, susceptible to failure is something that these professors from Australia are challenging. You know, it's it's kind of complicated, but there's certain restraints that uh, that do occur when these things are connected. It may be too complicated for us to get into in this interview, but basically the linear thermal expansion would not have occurred due to this restraining force from the floor slab. And, you know, the reason that it makes it even more difficult to believe is that in the computer model, NIST actually didn't heat the floor slab. So we've got a composite structure that are that's connected with, with shear studs. And what NIST does in its computer is it heats simply part of that structure, the beams below. It again heats it to uh, temperatures that are not supported by any physical evidence. But they don't heat the concrete floor slab above. And that's what they feel causes the linear thermal, differential thermal expansion at a greater degree. But of course, if you don't heat the floor slab, then you're not really reflecting anything realistic. 
Yes, I was just thinking that. Is there any way in which the fire could have just heated the steel without heating the concrete? Well, it would have had to heat the steel beams, but not the steel pans upon which the floor slab was was laying. And, and they're right next to each other. So it would have had to have been a, some sort of torch effect that doesn't make a lot of sense given the uh, effects of a normal office fire. So has NIST... And now that it's got these results, has it issued some statements to the general building industry to say that there, there are various ways of building that now need to be taken into consideration? Has this been taken up by architects and engineers? Well, actually, I wrote a paper on that uh, a year or two ago called Are Tall Buildings Safer as a Result of the NIST World Trade Center Reports? And it's a very good question. If the NIST World Trade Center reports are, in fact, legitimate, then we have a problem in that exactly for the Building 7 in, in particular. Um, any tall building experiences an office fire, such as World Trade Center 7 did, and if it can collapse in a matter of seconds from this office fire, then we have a critical safety problem. First of all, we would need to retrofit buildings around the world. But going back to the recommendations, the NIST group did make a number of recommendations. They made recommendations on all sorts of uh, things related to what happened on World Trade Centers. Uh, the World Trade Center collapsed from the egress, from the evacuation, to the elevators, to all sorts of things. Now, what we must be most interested in are the things that led to the uh, supposed collapse of the building, thermal uh, differential expansion, for example. And um, when we look at the codes, the municipal codes and what building professionals has, have adopted, they have not, not adopted any of the recommendations related to the supposed collapse initiation of either the towers or Building 7. And so that is an indication that the building community has not taken the NIST World Trade Center report seriously. So that goes for the, the recommendations for the towers as well in terms of like uh, increasing fireproofing bond strengths or anything like that, that that might have some relation to what happened to the towers. The building community has not adopted any recommendations related to those things. So that's an indication. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why we can't believe NIST's report. They, they ignored previous findings. They, they didn't do any physical tests to confirm the explanation of uh, Building 7. The fire hypothesis is contradicted by the fire resistance plan that, and th that existed. They're based entirely on computer simulations that we can't see and that are not based on evidence and so forth and so on. It's just really completely unbelievable. So you say it's not possible to get hold of the data that they used for their uh, computer modeling. There was this uh, the request that was made uh, and with the re result being we're not going to give you this information because it might jeopardize public safety. Is that the one? <laughs> That's the one, yeah. Ah. Uh, structural engineer uh, Ron Brookman, he was a fellow board director of mine at Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth had made a, a Freedom of Information Act request to NIST in 2009, and he asked for all the calculations and the analysis related to this central claim of NIST that the girder walked off its seat, right? It was pushed off its seat. Um, NIST ultimately responded to uh, Ron Brookman saying that they're going to withhold the, the thousands of files related to that because the NIST director had determined that uh, the data might jeopardize public safety. I don't quite see how that could possibly jeopardize public safety. It seemed to me to be quite the opposite, really. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly what I would think, that, you know, this is all about safety. And, you know, people need to know so that this sort of thing doesn't happen again. Instead, what we're finding is that they're concealing the information that led to their conclusions because, for some reason, that in itself, that information itself might jeopardize the public safety. And is it right that with Building 7, they didn't actually look at the possibility of thermite being used? Because I understand that Stephen Jones's work had actually identified uh, the, the residues of thermite before the final report of this came out on Building 7. But uh, I understand that they didn't consider that. That's true. They, well, they were forced to make some statement in what they called a frequently asked questions response. They made a kind of weak hand-waving statement about thermite, saying that if thermite was used, 
they hypothesized it would have been used in one gigantic bomb placed right next to column 79. And that would have been too much thermite for anybody to have brought into the building without anybody noticing. Now, that's kind of, to me, a, a diversionary statement. It's more of a straw man argument. But there's great evidence for thermite at the World Trade Center from the molten metal, all of the witnesses to molten metal, the photographic evidence, the fact that the fires could not be put out for months, uh, really five months, the many witnesses to the air being this hot, filled with this hot burning particles. I don't know if people are aware of that. The uh, numerous ve vehicles in the area that were scorched by something, uh, and a lot of other other evidence, including peer-reviewed scientific research that um, I've helped to produce along with Professor Jones, and so all of this leads to the conclusion that thermite, uh, high explosive potential, and also incendiary material was present at the World Trade Center. And of course, uh, Niels Harrit and his group identified or claimed to have identified nanothermite, a very sophisticated form of thermite, in 2009. Now, I understand that James Millette in 2011, that his group also looked at dust samples from the WTC collapses and drew the conclusion that there was actually no evidence for nanothermite. Yes, I've heard of this and uh, had some interactions with the one or two people on it. And James Millette it uh, turns out was well known for having helped create the official reports on the analysis of World Trade Center dust. And he had created a form that was used to pre-screen all the materials found in the dust. That means that essentially selecting some things for analysis and, t and ignoring other things. And then after years after uh, this report from Herod and others came out uh, citing these red-gray chips in the dust, um, Millett was prompted to uh, do a few studies based on some samples he had in his possession because he was uh, uh, one of the official investigators. He had some of this dust. He did claim that he did finally find these red-gray chips, which he had not reported before. Uh, he did not cite any of the iron-rich spheres, which essentially every other researcher has identified in World Trade Center dust. Um, but he did now finally say that he found these red-gray chips. And what he did was an interesting sort of series of tests that had very little to do with the Herrett paper. You know, the Herrett paper cites approximately 10 specific tests that were performed on these red-gray chips. And Millette performed one of those 10 tests. And then he, something that was uh, very um, indicative to me, he, he put them in basically in a muffle furnace and ashed them. He had brought them up to 400 degrees Celsius and they turned to ash. So one of the critical aspects of the red-gray chip analysis was that these chips ignite above 400 degrees Celsius. So that at 400 degrees Celsius, they would not have turned to ash, according to Herod et al. Uh, they would still be, uh, until they get about 430 degrees Celsius, they would ignite and they would form these iron-rich spheres. They would form they, they form right out of the material itself. And that's mm -hmm. an indication of a thermitic uh, reaction because one of the major products of thermite reaction is iron, molten iron. Um, Millette ignored all of that by putting his materials in the muffle furnace. And then he said they ashed it at a temperature below what should have been the ignition temperature. So there's a lot of questions about this. Uh, a series of tests that Millette did. It's not been peer-reviewed. It hasn't been published. Uh, years later, it's been, what, uh, been four or five years since he did that. People cite it all the time, this unreviewed paper. But what really is, is better is if for scientific progress, as with Herrett and Jones academic papers that are peer-reviewed and published, that there is a response, hopefully in the future, that is published and peer-reviewed that actually does replicate the study and doesn't do uh, this sort of thing, which doesn't seem to be very helpful. So I'm getting the impression from everything that you said today, really, about NIST, that really it's more of a political organization than most people would suppose. You know, We do tend to think of it as the epitome of science, but the impression I'm getting is that it's compromised politically. That does seem to be the case, and certainly the NIST World Trade Center reports are suggest that the NIST scientists, at least with this investigation, were led and directed by political interests. Mm. 
So just before we end, I wanted to ask you a, a general question really about what you think the state of play is now with the call for 9-11 truth. Do you think that you and others who are researching this are you know getting to the point now where there's so much evidence you know we really should be seeing a proper investigation there's there's absolutely no reason now why this should be resisted and if that's the case are we actually getting any closer to a proper real investigation well i think that people are more open to uh questions about 9-11 given that that's been 13 years since those events as time passes uh wounds heal People are not as invested in uh, questions that might contradict their worldview uh, from that long ago. And yes, I do believe we, we have an opportunity even uh, this year to see um, a legitimate investigation. There's an initiative in New York City called the High Rise Initiative in which citizens in New York City have submitted uh, 60,000 signatures on a petition to the City Council of New York's to uh, call for investigation of any high-rise collapse in the city. And this would go back to the events of 2001, particularly the Building 7. Mm -hmm. Now, they've been challenged uh, because there are politicians in the New York City Council who are trying to reject that petition to throw out more than half of the signatures obtained. And so there's right now a battle going on, but people can find the website for High Rise Safety Initiative just by searching that on the internet, and I think there are ways to help. And you say there's a possibility this year that that might actually go forward. Yes, the the vote, if the petition is, uh, they're they're going to court now uh, with the city council, and if if they win, then there will be a a vote in November for this new law that would require investigation going back to the events of Building Seven. And do you actually have the hope that if this does go ahead, that it would be a fair investigation? Or do you think that the political forces would again come and compromise even that? It would be a chance. It would be an opportunity to do a fair investigation, a legitimate investigation. Well, Kevin, thank you ever so much again for coming on the program. You provided, as you did last time, a a wealth of information for us. And uh, I think you've given us reason enough, at least to question the work of NIST in this area. I think you've cast a shadow of significant doubt over the idea that the collapses have been satisfactorily explained, according to the official story of 9-11. So I do thank you very much indeed for sharing all this with us and for coming on the program again. It's been good to speak with you. Well, you're welcome. And thank you for your efforts to get the word out on subjects such as this. Thank you ever so much. Thanks, Julian.